If you have a Bible, we're in uh, the book of Mark. I think most of us figured that out. Chapter 1. I mean, today um, I got to experience for the first time the joy of choosing too many verses to preach, and so I put some of them off till next week. You're welcome. <laughs> and I'm telling you, on Thursday I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save that till next week. And it was nice. So this morning what we're going to cover... Um, is from chapter 1, Mark, verses 1 through 4. And let me read that for us now. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to come um, out of the world into your throne room, drawing near to you. Who um, You are here. This is your house. You have assigned this time and this place to meet with us in a special way, to renew covenant with us, to comfort us, to heal us, to convict us, to build us up. And we thank you so much, Father, for the opportunity to be here, to be with you, to be yours. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would open it now and that you would minister in in every way that we need through it this morning for each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, John Mark begins his gospel account with an echo from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This indicates a new beginning of redemptive history, in fact, of human history. He's, there is something new beginning, and Mark is recording that. John Mark is declaring a new beginning. John the baptizer is calling Israel to a new beginning. The first chapter of Mark is full of new beginnings. The beginning of the gospel is actually found in Isaiah, it turns out. The joyous proclamation about Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectations of the holy prophets. It's fascinating. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and turn, everyone turn now to the book of Isaiah. I, I find that very interesting. The word beginning has biblical overtones, which lend an awesome ring to the opening, uh, opening phrase of this gospel. John Mark begins with Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel, the end of the Old Testament, as the last prophet appears to declare a new beginning. The prophet who appears from right out of the Old Testament, it's, it's almost like somebody just picked him up out of ancient Israel and just drops him into modern Israel. He preaches on the edge of the land, a message of comfort and warning to wayward Israel. He's calling the people of God to humble themselves or face humiliation along with God's enemies. Mark's intention is grasped by reading verses 1 through 4 as a single sentence. The good news concerns the, Jesus the Christ but begins with the wilderness prophet who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about Christ's messengers. There is a long tradition of a messenger who's going to come before the Messiah comes. And so there's there's three prophecies in the beginning of Mark. The first two are about John, not Jesus. The first two are about John. The third one is about Jesus, and that's what we're going to cover next week. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus is found in the writings of the Old Testament, as I already said. So a prior knowledge of the Old Testament is crucial if you're going to understand why the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, is good news. 
A gospel is the joyous proclamation of the birth or victory or ascension of an emperor, and to understand why that matters, not only for Israel, but for the whole world, one must understand Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi. What I find fascinating here is that you actually have the law and the prophets represented in the quotations that John Mark chose, which the law and the prophets, some of you know, I think if you've read the New Testament, the law and the prophets is how you refer to the entire Old Testament scriptures. So John Mark is essentially saying the entire Old Testament is about this good news that he's proclaiming. And this is what I love about John Mark. He's doing it in a very shorthanded kind of way. He's not saying it, but he's quoting from the law and the prophets. We have two, right? And when Jesus is on the mountain during the transfiguration, who shows up? Elijah and Moses representing the law and the prophets. Okay, this, the law and the prophets testifying to what John Mark is preaching is very important. Israel's ancient scriptures are framed with a narrative, an unfinished narrative of a certain shape and style. When you read the Old Testament from Genesis straight through to Malachi, as I know we all do every year, <laughs> we are left with a sense that the story is supposed to be going somewhere, but that it hasn't gotten there yet. I don't know about you guys. I can usually make it through Genesis. I love that book. I, I do a little bit of Exodus. I read First and Second Samuel, and then I'm usually done, right? Uh, occasionally when I'm really feeling real serious, I read Lamentations, which I mostly don't understand. But I, I don't usually sit down and read the whole thing, Genesis or Malachi. But if you did, if one were to actually do that as they should, you, you right? There's a story going on that just kind of ends, just stops, as if as if it was a car that just ran out of gas. The story seems to have begun, uh, seems to have become badly stalled. It isn't so much like the story of a, of a journey in which the travelers have almost reached their destination and need merely to walk the last few miles down a gentle slope to arrive in fine style. It is more like the story of a journey in which the travelers have misread the map, lost their way, and become stuck in quicksand with hostile troops closing in around them. <laughs> It's as if you're reading uh, Lord of the Rings and you stop with Frodo at the edge of Mordor. When you read the Old Testament, that's, you're like, okay, what, what happened next? Well, it's been 400 years. What's going on with this story? This is the impression we might get if we read straight through the Old Testament. Great beginnings and wonderful visions of God's big plans and God's big purposes, and then a steady decline into puzzling and shameful failures, all ending in a question mark. Just as Genesis 1 through 3 tells the story of the human plight through the pattern of glorious beginnings, rich vocations, and then horrible failure and exile, so Genesis 12 through the end of Malachi tells the story of Israel, tells the story of Israel with tales of glorious beginnings, rich vocations, and then horrible failure and exile. The problem is that we have, we have all read the Gospels, if we haven't been careful, simply as God's answer to the plight of the human race in general. The implied backstory hasn't been the story of Abraham and Moses, of David and the prophets. It's been the story of Adam and Eve, of every man, sinning and dying and needing to be saved. This is in my sermon on what the gospel is. We focus so much on fallen Adam, and he just needs to be restored. We, we tend to miss all that stuff in the middle, as if salvation and being saved and going to heaven in the end, and don't we just get to go back to Eden? That, that tends to be what we think the gospel is, because that's the part of the story in the Old Testament that we focus on. Israel's story generally in our world, in our understanding of the scripture, sneaks in alongside the story of Adam in, in a truncated version, merely to offer some advanced promises, some hints, and signposts. But it's all very vague, right? 
I mean, what does, in 1 Samuel, uh, for, for instance, um, there is a plague, and they have to make casts of the tumors that they have and the rats that give them the plague, and then put the copies of, the, of those things into the ark. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus Christ, right? Um, I'll, don't worry. Samuel is what I'm going to preach on after Mark, so we will all one day find out what that's all about. I'm still working on it, though. It's going to take me a little while. Our, our rejection, rejection of the Old Testament, either outrightly or through neglect, means that we don't truly understand the gospel. This is what John Mark is telling us. The beginning of the gospel is the Old Testament. Its many layers, its contours, its complexities of the gospel are lost on us because we are not familiar with the Old Testament. We have a truncated, self-centered, immature understanding of God, his kingdom, and what it means for the world. Therefore, our understanding of what it really means to be his disciple and to follow Jesus is likewise truncated, self-centered, and immature. The Bible is not just a story of the salvation of a fallen man. It's the dramatic story of a family, a weird, weird family, of which you are all members. <laughs> and it's right here in the Old Testament. These are your mothers and fathers, and our king descends from them to fulfill all of their hopes and expectations. And if you come to understand that in all of its depth, that's when you really come to understand what the gospel is. It's helpful to read John, don't get me wrong, but if you haven't read the Old Testament, a lot of it is just lost on you. Uh, what I, I find right now, reading this, studying Mark, there's, a, uh, there's all kinds of things obviously, that I'm missing because there's all kinds of echoes and, and examples and follow-through and, you know, some background that I don't have any idea about from the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story of Israel. He comes to rule and renew the entire universe as the head of Israel. So the story of Israel is important. Jesus has set us the task of carrying on that family's, that weird family's story. And we're all weird enough to be in that family. I know you guys. <laughs> That's our family story. That's our family history. Okay? All of that stuff in the Old Testament. That, that's about us. We're the new Israel. Okay? And, and their expectations of what Jesus would do should inform us and, and help us to understand and shape our expectations of what he's going to do. I know Genesis has, a long, has long genealogies, right? You're going along, it's fine, it's, it's a little weird at times. Noah and his kids, and they're hanging out, and somebody's drinking, and somebody's naked. Okay, you're reading it, and then all of a sudden there's a genealogy that goes on for two chapters. How many of you skipped those, right? <laughs> Come on. Okay, Joshua, too, is another one. Man, they're whooping some butt in that book. And then all of a sudden they go on for five chapters about who gets what river and what town and what whatever, and I don't even understand what they're talking about most of the time. You guys ever had that? You're reading Joshua? They start getting into the division of land, and I just kind of, I'm like, where's some fighting? I feel like my boys. It's like, is there some action in this book? Ruth is one of my favorite, right? Ruth is a great story, but there's so much agrarian culture in that book. It's as far from anything, it's as far as the east from the west for me. I, I don't understand most of it. Justin might understand it. Do you read that book a lot, maybe, as a farmer? I don't know. <laughs> He's like, threshing, got it, done. But if you love Jesus, if you love him, you want to know his story, all of it. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. He's there. He's leading. He's, he shows up. Not, not just in some spirit and in some type. He literally shows up in the Old Testament. And what he, this is what I love about 
he comes into the New Testament and he's not doing anything different from what he was doing in the Old Testament, frankly. He's just a man now. He, he comes to show us who he is, not to become something that he wasn't. And, and understanding the Old Testament helps us understand him in a much, right? He, he wasn't just born. He existed before that. And he was doing things before that. And it's important to understand who he is as a man if you understand what he's been up to all along. At the end of the first half of the story of the Old Testament, centuries before Jesus, a silence fell over Israel. It's important for us to understand what Jesus had done in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, from Sinai to Zion, from Canaan to Calvary. The entire story matters to us. Okay? And all of this anticipation, they're waiting. There had, this silence fell on the people of God, and they're all waiting desperately for someone to rescue them. In the stillness of their slavery and despair, just like at the beginning of the book of Exodus, a voice is heard coming from the wilderness, a man with a remarkable birth just like Moses, dressed just like Elijah, declaring the message of Isaiah and Malachi. That is what John is saying, John Mark is saying at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. This guy, it, 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 you're in slavery just like at the beginning of Exodus. Here comes this guy with a miraculous birth just like Moses. He's dressed just like Elijah, and the words of Isaiah and Malachi are on his lips. John was a man of the wilderness. He avoided civilized housing, clothing, and food. I'm telling you, he's wearing a camel hair shirt, and he's eating bugs. He must smell amazing. <laughs> he's declaring the imminent fulfillment of ancient promises on the edge of society. Okay, it would have been just as wacky then as it is now when you go downtown and there is some very strange-looking man telling us all that the end of the world is coming. And we all, right, what do we do? We just keep driving. Turn up the music. That guy is weird. And it's exactly the same thing. Here's Israel in the land. They have the land. They have the temple. They have the promised land. The, the problem is Rome is there. And then here comes this nut on the edge of society saying, everyone head back out to the woods. That's strange. That's strange. This is why Jesus is so confusing to the Jews. And before Jesus, John the baptizer is confusing to them. They have the land, they have the temple, they have the law. And what they need to do is kick the Romans out and everything will be just fine. But there are things that they have forgotten, like the people of God always do. God's glory departed from the temple back in Ezekiel 10. It, he, he got up and he left the room. But Israel thinks because they have the temple, they still have him. But he's not there. He's not there. Now, okay, I understand God is everywhere. I'm talking about his special presence. He left the room. Elvis is gone, okay? You can keep chanting and cheering all you want. He's not coming back. He's left the building. The people of God live in a spiritual Egypt. The land is full of idolatry and wickedness just as much as it had been when Israel had first come into the land. They're enslaved to Rome. They have the law, but there is no love in it, neither for the one who gave it to them or for the people who they're trying to get to follow it. It's been centuries since a word has was received from the Lord, and though they think otherwise, the land is bereft of the Lord's covenantal promise. They live in a spiritual Egypt. They have rejected the Lord, and though they possess the outward conformity of their religion, God is distant in both word and deed. Repentance, cleansing, 
re-entrance from bondage to freedom, from death to life to wilderness to land of promise. Entering again through the Jordan River into the promises of God is what Israel desperately needs. And they don't know it. They don't know it. But God promised to send someone to tell them. To tell them what they didn't know. To show them who they really were. To expose them to the truth because they're believing lies. We have, in verses 2 through 3 of Mark, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 are three Old Testament passages. Let me just deal with something right out of the, out of the gate. It says, according to Isaiah, and then it goes on to quote Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi. Now, what I like about the authors of the Bible is that they are an author a lot like I am. I don't really care to footnote things very carefully. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I like the way they do history, too, because it's always a little confusing exactly what the chronology of events is, because they don't care about chronology of events like modern people do. They care about the story. What, what, what they're doing here is when you quote Isaiah, you quote other verses explaining what Isaiah is saying. So he's quoting Isaiah, but he's including these, these verses from Exodus and from Malachi to help us understand what Isaiah is saying. He's offering the commentary on it, uh, and he doesn't care to cite it. Most likely because, especially then, he's just doing it off of the top of his head because they don't, you know, they don't have Google. Um, as soon as I can't remember what verse that is, I go to Google. I don't even use my Bible app. I just go right to Google. Google knows everything. It's amazing. But they don't have that. You have to read things and memorize things and then recall things. And that's what he's doing here. So, you know, people make hay out of this kind of stuff. Oh, he says Isaiah, but it's not Isaiah. Yeah, okay. Well, they, they, they did things differently back then. It does not mean that it's not true. Okay, so that, that's what I'm going to say about that. So Mark chapter 1 begins with, with these, this compilation of Old Testament citations. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So what we have here is Exodus 23:30, Malachi 3:1, and Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. These Old Testament passages blended in this fashion are all related to the wilderness tradition and have a significant function of the prologue itself. So what we're in now is the prologue of Mark. We've passed from just the title into the prologue now. And there is this huge wilderness tradition that the Jews would have had. Now when I say wilderness tradition, what is that? Well, partially why we don't know what that is is because of our, our inability to read the Old Testament on a regular basis. The wilderness is where the people of Abraham lived as nomads. The wilderness is where God led Israel after the mighty exodus and kept them in anticipation until the Lord led them through the waters of the Jordan River into the land promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The wilderness is where God sent Israel after their idolatry, lost them the land, the temple, and God himself. They went into exile into the wilderness. Exodus 23.20 contains God's promise to send his messenger before the people on the first exodus through the wilderness of Canaan. It's placed alongside these other passages as context and commentary on this messenger. What messenger are we talking about? Well, do you remember the messenger in Exodus who led God's people through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, through the Jordan River into the Promised Land? It's a messenger like that. That's what John Mark is saying by including these verses together. In Hebrew and Greek, it's very important to understand that the word messenger and angel are the same word. So 
in the in Exodus it says an angel led them. In the New Testament it says a messenger led them. And and the reason is the word is the same. It doesn't actually matter which one you use because an angel is a messenger. Um, sometimes it can be confusing because not all messengers are angels. Right, but all angels are messengers, as was read for us this morning in the call. In Exodus, the angel is actually God himself. This is partially what I'm talking about. It's called a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus before he's incarnate, incarnate. And he appears in the Old Testament. It's actually him. He's the angel who leads the Exodus. He's the angel that leads them uh, through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. He's the one that... Um, Protects them from the Egyptian army, it says in Exodus 14:19, And he is the one who descended in the dark cloud for fellowship with Israel on Mount Sinai. So long before Moses shows up in Jesus' life on the hilltop, right? Jesus had already showed up on the hilltop in Moses' life. Um, and that's what they're echoing there with the transfiguration. The quotation from Isaiah comes from a context of comfort and good news at the end of Israel's exile in Babylon. God himself will return to deliver the people, and a messenger will announce the good news of Israel's redemption, just like he did in Exodus. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the messenger announces the second Exodus through the wilderness to the final deliverance prepared for God's people. This is partially fulfilled in Isaiah himself. This is how the prophets work. Isaiah is saying that there is a messenger coming to tell you your exile is almost over. I'm the messenger. At the same time, there is another messenger who's going to come who's going to tell you about the real end of exile, the real final exodus, the real final Joshua who's going to come and, and take you to the promised land. So this is how Isaiah works. This is how all the prophets work. They're talking about things in real time, in history. I'm not going to get into everything that Isaiah was talking about because it's like 65 chapters, that book. I don't have that kind of time. You don't have that kind of interest. And, and so what you have is you have this double meaning. There's the real history, and then there's the future prophecy. That, that's what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about them coming out of exile, and he's talking about John the Baptist coming to give them the, the final message. Okay, I hope that's not too confusing. I find that confusing. Sometimes I have to get up on a, on a whiteboard and actually draw it, and it's like, who are they talking Oh, is this? It's always Israel they're talking about, but which Israel? First century Israel or like back in B.C.? Or it's very can be very confusing. Israel did return. They did. They were called back out of the wilderness, back out of exile. They rebuilt the temple, but they are ruled by foreigners and Israel, and the Israelites are still scattered throughout the world, right? There's this diaspora. There's all these Jews that have come back to the land and built the temple, but there's still Jews all over the place and building their little ghettos throughout the ancient world um, because they, they're still waiting for this last grand exodus where everybody comes back to the temple. The original Exodus, many centuries before, I think we're all familiar with that, right? The, the people of God were in bondage, crying out, and he, because he had promised to do so, showed up to deliver them in power, to lead them through the wilderness in power, to lead them into the promised land in power. Now, Isaiah prophesied that God would not remain in heaven, but would come himself in power. It wouldn't just be an angel or a messenger, right? The messenger was going to come, and then God himself was going to come, defeating the powers of evil and rescuing the, his people. Isaiah promises the coming of the kingdom of God. In other words, Isaiah is speaking of God becoming king of the whole world in a new way. This is the new beginning. Isaiah promises this new beginning. John Mark says, in the beginning, right? Do you see the connection here? This whole prologue is about new beginnings. 
But before this new beginning, at the beginning of the new beginning, one like Elijah, a prophet, a herald, a messenger, would come to make straight the ways of God. He would prepare the people because where God is present, all must be clean and holy. Now, if I told you the president was coming over to your house, even this president, I think you might clean up your house a little nicer than you normally would. Right? I hope, anyway. Uh, modern people have lost this sense of respect for authority, but most of us, I think, if we heard President Trump was coming over for dinner, would look a little nicer. I'd go get a new shirt from Fred Meyer or something, I'm sure. The Brits have a saying, actually, and I love this. Wherever the queen goes, it smells like new paint. <laughs> and uh, it's true. She, she is testified to the fact that it gives her a headache because everywhere she comes, everything's painted freshly. Mark is signifying all of this with brevity, quoting the key thematic sections of the Old Testament. God himself is going to come, and he, before he does, to, to make sure everybody looks smart and looks proper and everything is painted anew, he's going to send a herald to let everyone know. The combined citations that we've, that we've seen here focus on three factors, which are very significant for Mark's whole prologue. There's a herald, the Lord, and the wilderness. These are three things that he's talking about in these citations. The herald, the Lord, and the wilderness. A herald is just a messenger. These three factors make up the entire prologue. It's what the next three ser- this sermon and the next two sermons are about. Mark 1, 1 through 13 is the prologue, and it includes the wilderness ministry of John, the anointing of Jesus as the Lord, and Jesus then in the wilderness. But there's one uh, citation, I don't know if you're keeping score. <laughs> There's one citation I haven't explained, and it's the one from Malachi. And a lot of um, people originally missed it because Malachi versus, the verses from Malachi and the verse from Exodus are actually blended together into one quotation. There's just two quotes. And, and, and the first verse, chapter 2, or verse 2, as it is, or I'm sorry, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, is actually a verse from Malachi and Exodus blended all together. He just put it in a blender and shook it up. So what, what that does is that actually, all of this stuff is good news. Isaiah said, God is going to come, God is going to lead you, God is going to deliver you, just like the old Exodus. That is amazing. This is awesome. Why are you quoting from Malachi. If, if I were Israel and I had read the book of Malachi, I, I would say, stop, I think you've messed up somewhere. Go back. Because you couldn't possibly be talking to us in the way Malachi was talking to Israel in the old days. It's unsettling that he includes Malachi here. Let's look at the context of Malachi. The land was in jeopardy due to Israel's sins, Malachi 4.6. The temple was not being treated as it should have been treated, Malachi 3.10. The priests were corrupt, Malachi 2, 1-9. Despite dwelling in a special land where God's servants served him in his dwelling, Malachi not just mocks them, he mocks their sacrifices, he mocks their prayers, he mocks the fact that they think they're sons of God because they're living in such a way that is incongruous with who they are. What they're doing and who they are is not lining up. Israel thinks it's holy and their hypocrisy and self-reliance by keeping the law is what is keeping God at bay. They don't think they need the presence of the God. They have all the trappings of the religion, right? Look at, we've got a temple. We slaughter things there. We have incense there. We have bread there, right? We're, we're clean. We're not like the Gentiles. They have all the externals. And, and they're not, they're forgetting the fact that all of the things of God are not God himself. 
They've confused the two. I'm going to read Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Just so think about this, right? You're hearing this message from Isaiah about good news, and then he drops this quote in there, and this is what the, the Jews would have thought about. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He's coming, He's not, he, and his power is coming not just in comfort, but as a consuming fire. Israel needs to understand that the purifying work of Christ renders the offerings and works of those he has cleansed pleasing and acceptable before God. It's Jesus' coming. He needs to come and wash them clean. He needs to come and wash their works clean to make them acceptable before the face of God. But they don't think they need that. They think they need to get rid of Rome. They don't think they need to be cleaned. They don't think they need to be washed. They don't think they need to repent of anything. They have all of the stuff that God had always promised them. We've got the land. We've got the temple. We've got the law. Just get rid of Rome. The problem is that Israel is so focused on where they are living that they have totally missed the importance of the way that they are living. At the end of the book of Mark, Jesus sends the disciples as heralds, heralds excuse me, to the whole world in the Great Commission, right? That's how the book ends. Go and proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. At the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus sends the last prophet as a herald to Israel herself. Before God throws the doors open of his temple, before he throws the doors of his temple open to the world, he's going to cleanse his temple first. Right? I think Jesus says it, doesn't he? You invite in proselytes and make them twice the sons of Satan. Because your temple is disgusting. Your temple is full of filth. Your temple is full of filth because your hearts are full of filth. Israel is lost, even though they have the land. Israel is corrupt and immoral, even though they have the law. Israel is full of idolatry, even though they have the temple. They need a new beginning. And it looks an awful, like, an awful lot like the old beginning. And they've forgotten it, utterly forgotten it. God rescues them. But instead of being a rescue from externals, God is coming to rescue them from internals. And when he tries to do that, they say no thanks, and they hang him on a cross, and they kill him. Right? It's, it's not about internals, Jesus. It's about washing your hands before you eat. <laughs> it's not about my heart, Jesus. It's about how, many, uh, how much tithing I do of mint. The citation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 introduces this motif of the way, okay? Israel was so focused on the where, they forgot the way. And, and now John Mark is saying, John the baptizer came to remind them of the way. Not just the where, but the way to live. This, theme, this becomes a theme throughout the entire gospel. To follow straight paths means to avoid idolatry and other wicked behaviors, but the cry in the wilderness is not a cry to follow straight paths, rather it's an exhortation to make paths straight for him. In both of the citations from the chapters that we had read for us this morning by Joel, there's both sections say something about making the path straight, the way straight. And what there, there's two different meanings there. One of them is make yourselves straight so that you can follow Jesus. 
The other promise is that Jesus is going to come and then make the way straight. (laughs) Make yourselves straight, and then he comes and he makes the way straight, and straight people, no pun intended, follow the straight way. So you... So people get confused with this, as if the whole thing is about us just getting our lives in order, right? I don't chew, swear, or no, what is it? I don't swear, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do, or whatever. That's like the way that I always mock my dad, <laughs> the uh, Baptists, right? As long as you don't swear, everything's fine. It's not about just reforming your life. It's about this combination of I'm going to humble myself and prepare the way, put some fresh paint on this thing, and then God is going to come and he's going to level every mountain, raise every valley, and get every rock out of the way so that I can follow him with, without interruption. Okay, generally the disciples, we think about the disciples making a road for God. That It's the other way around. He's making a way for them. And what's amazing is that he shows them the way is the cross, And that's not what they're expecting either. He says, if you want to follow me, follow me this way. And then he goes out and he lives in such a way that it's extremely incongruous to everything they're expecting. Because Jesus' way is the way of service. Jesus' way is the way of humility. Jesus is the way way of wilderness. Man doesn't live on bread alone. I do the will of my Father. I don't need a house he, does, he lives in this wilderness mentality where what he, he needs isn't the comforts of society, but his God, his Father, who loves him. Everything in the desert which makes the journey difficult for the redeemed will be transformed. We see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus leads the disciples on the way. Jesus leads the way and teaches about it. However, it seems to be anything but easy. It is the way to the cross and the way of the cross. To follow Jesus is not a call to adopt his way of life through asceticism, mere monkishness. Lots of people have tried that. I'll just live in this little hole, and I'll eat rotten bread, and it'll just be fine. Uh, If you read, this this was fascinating. I was reading an account of a monk, and I thought he was talking about all this like horrible lust and sin that he had in his life. I thought he was talking about his life before he was a monk. And then it's like, no, that was what he was experiencing in the cell. It's like, at least get some better food. If you're going to struggle one way or the other, at least eat some decent food, right? I mean, what's the point of starving yourself nearly to death if you're going to struggle the same way? Maybe I'm not the person to make that point. (laughs) To follow Jesus is to not call to adopt his way of life through asceticism. It is not adopting his ideals or principles, but to follow behind him in the path he himself walks wherever he leads. That's the struggle. Get yourself straight and follow him wherever it goes because he's going to take care of everything that's in your way. And you're like, whoa, no, 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 no. We need a full bank account. We need a full cupboard, right? We, there's things we need. We can't just go out into a wilderness. Who's going to give who, How are we going to eat? How are we going to drink? Where are we going to sleep? And, and he said, I will make a way. Get yourself straight and follow me. The path will be straight. And we don't believe it, and so we don't follow him. The story of how God saves us is the template for a life of salvation. And it begins with a call to repentance and humility. An abandoning of religious pretensions and a return to a wilderness understanding of our dependence and need of God. I know we do not live in a wilderness, but we need to live as if we were in the wilderness. 
right? And, and, and he's, the word of God says that all these cars and money and books and entertainment and food and roads and stop signs and policemen to make sure we follow the stop signs, all of those things have led us to believe that we have an ordered, organized, holy, good, blessed life. What we all need to do is go back to the wilderness. We need a new beginning that looks an awful lot like the original beginning. <laughs> repent. Repent. We need to leave our easy, safe selfishness and return to a wilderness-like dependence of God today forever. John the Baptizer's father was a priest. This is one of those things I learned. I, I, didn't, I never thought about this. That means John is a priest. That means John has, has inherited this glorious gig, <laughs> working in the temple, eating the best food, getting all the respect, Right, getting this, the easy, safe selfishness that came with being a priest in those days. But where's John? He's rejected all of that distraction, and he's out where he knows that the people of God ought to be in the wilderness. Now, am I saying you should all sell everything and go out in the wilderness? Right, we're going to move to Eastern Washington to some hills. This, this is where, this is where for us, this is the most difficult thing to explain. I'm not saying we're going to go live in a wilderness because God has blessed us and this is where we need to be. But we need to live like we're in the wilderness. Like we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. Like we don't know where we're going to get water from. Like we don't think that our bank account is going to cover it. Now, John has inherited this position and he has rejected it. And it's a sign that of the total rejection of Israel's worship. John's food isn't the meat, bread, and wine of the temple, but the locusts and wild honey of the wilderness. Neither is his garb and sustenance of the refined tables of the scribes, money collectors, and Pharisees who eat like the Greek aristocracy. John's message is that the Romans better wa- John's message isn't that the Romans had better watch out, but that the people of God had better watch out. If they don't repent, that temple isn't going to do anything for them. And John knows it, and so John is going out to the wilderness because he's terrified of what's going to happen when Jesus shows up because Jesus is going to cleanse his temple. And you either get clean or he's going to clean you. And that's the, that's the rub. That's what Israel comes out there and they're like, who are you, you nut bar? And, and in, in our lives, right, we don't swear. Look at us. Easy, safe selfishness. Middle-class Americans, it doesn't get easier, more selfish, or easier than that. I can just keep saying easier. It's so easy. And what we all need is a new beginning. We need to live like we live, like we're in the wilderness where God is. Now, the wilderness, this is the big close here. The wilderness goes on to have a lot of symbolism in it, okay? This is why I'm not talking about a literal wilderness, Jesus goes into the wilderness for solitary prayer. Jesus goes into the wilderness to pray. Jesus goes into the wilderness and then has a miraculous meal where he feeds a whole bunch of people. The wilderness is a symbol. He, he calls people to this wilderness where, where they will come in solitude and prayer with communion with him and he will feed them. And this beginning that we need so badly is what he gives us every week. The Israelites need to go into the wilderness and get right with God and have a a, a come-to-Jesus moment. They need to rectify their lives. They need to depend upon him. They need to get away from all of the craziness and go and live in such a way that they need him every day for everything. And that covenant renewal model is how our worship service works. 
It's exactly what this is. Come out of your easy, safe, selfish life. Come here where he will meet you, where he will commune with you, where he will give you everything that you need. We need a new beginning, all of us, every one of us. And the new beginning looks a lot like the old beginning. We need to repent. We need (laughs) to get everything that is blocking us from Jesus out of the way. And we need to follow him wherever he leads. Because what is he going to do? He's going to take care of anything in our way. When is he not? When is he not? Right? We, we have a church, but yet our lives are full of idols. We have the word of God, and yet we do not read it. We have the law, but we do not keep it. How are we different than the first century Israel, who needed so desperately to go back to the wilderness? Repent and seek his refining sacrifice for your sin. Wash again in the blood of the lamb. Pray to him. Eat his nourishment. Follow him to the cross and the way of the cross and begin anew. Appeal to heaven again and watch it open. And the Lord come in power. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your, the fulfillment of your promises in Jesus Christ. Father, it is so difficult for us who are so well fed and well cared for who are filled with the blessings from your table, from your hand. It is so easy for us to forget you. It's so hard for us to remember you. And I pray, Father, for all of us, each day this week as we go, get up and go about our days, that we would remember the wilderness and that we would live as if we live in a wilderness. We would cry out to you, that we would come to you in prayer, that we would be sustained by your word, by your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.